It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book Close Encounters of the Worst Kind and the captivating memoir Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. Today we're going to be talking about kind of a delicate topic. However, the way in which we're going to talk about it will not be so delicate in that we're not going to focus on the details of this issue, but on how to heal from it. Today's special guest, Denise, and I forgot to ask her name, Bosarte, Bosart, a survivor of incest, has often wanted to share her story of healing with other survivors, but Denise struggled to find a way to tell it. When she learned about Dr. Nasser's abuse of gymnasts, her heart broke and she said to herself, I could help women like these by sharing my healing story. Denise has spent most of her adult life on a healing journey to recover from childhood abuse. She has used multiple practices in her healing journey, including therapy, yoga, meditation, being in nature, and creative expression like art and photography, writing, poetry, um, fiction, nonfiction writing. She shares her story and the steps it took for her to move from survivor to thriver in her self-help book, Thriving After Sexual Abuse. Break your bondage to the past and live a life you love. Denise is a number one best-selling and award-winning author, poet, photographer, and artist whose passion is sharing the world of her mind through the camera. She enjoys writing, teaching, mixing, contemplative photography workshops, and going on photo shoots to discover the extraordinary in the ordinary world. Good morning, Denise, and welcome to A Fine Time for Healing. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be on the show. You're very welcome. So why don't you pronounce your last name for me? I meant to ask yeah, you, and I you, didn't. You did manage to, to hit it. It's Bossert. Bossert. Wow. Yep. Okay, I don't think I said that one. Bossert. Okay. <laughs> is this a French name? Um, because it's got the... Yeah, it is a French name. It's, it's my married name, but um, I think that they've kind of change the pronunciation. I have no idea what it should be in French, but that's how <laughs> his family pronounces it. So we're going with that. <laughs> okay. So I know that your book doesn't focus on the actual situation that happened, but I'm sure everyone is curious in general about what prompted all of this, what, what created this recovery, because you are a survivor of incest. So do you want to give us just a brief overview of kind of what you were dealing with? Sure. So my abuser was my grandfather, and he was my mother's father. 
And from the outside, our family looked pretty normal, right? My dad was a, a practicing physician. My mom had her own business. She, she had a Labrador retriever kennel and traveled internationally. But behind that, <laughs> there was the abuse. And, and every summer, we would go down to my grandparents. They were retired on a lake and had this beautiful home in the woods. There was fishing and boating and skiing and swimming and homemade food by my grandmother. But again, Behind all that was the abuse. And I, I can't tell you when it really started because people like me who have experienced this kind of trauma, sometimes it's difficult to connect the trauma memories with the rest of your life memories. They're, they're disconnected because you spent so much time trying to compartmentalize and dissociate. Often you can't map those. So I know based on how tall I was <laughs> um, I, versus my intimidating, you know, six foot four grandfather, that it was very young. It started very young in early elementary school and it continued on until he died when I was a freshman in high school. And most of my childhood was spent absolutely terrified of this person. I, my brain was a child's brain. I couldn't deal with what was happening to me. So again, like I said, I compartmentalized it, dissociated. I tried not to remember anything was what, what was happening. So when he died, all of a sudden, all of those memories just came out. And physical sensations, body memories, flashbacks, it was pretty overwhelming. And so to deal with that, because I was too ashamed to tell anyone to deal with that. I basically went into sports and music and, and scholastics and focused on school. And it wasn't until years later when I was actually a graduate student that I met someone who was a um, recovering alcoholic and doing 12-step programs that he really got me into getting some therapy, which got me into group therapy and kind of kicked off my healing journey at that point. Mm, okay. Thank you. Thank you. But you were, so you were moving forward in your life, but you know, you, you disliked your body, you hated your body. Um, Mm -hmm. You hated your grandfather. Um, You felt wary living in the world. You were angry. And what you said was, eventually I feared happiness because I had learned repeatedly through my childhood of the inevitable pain that would follow. You were always waiting for the other shoe to drop, waiting for the universe to yank away any positivity of joy when you least expected it. And you said to you, the universe was not dispassionate or uncaring about your happiness. It was joyfully, gleefully waiting for the exact moment when you were calm and confident and unwatchful, when it would be the most painful that they would snatch the rug out under from you, under you, and leave you torn and bleeding. That's a horrible way to to go through life. I, you know, yeah. it's very. You must have been so fearful. I was. I mean, you know, when you're growing up and you're that small, you're developing your worldview. Your brain is learning to understand how to relate to the world and how the the world's going to be. And I was taught that the world's a scary place that the people who are supposed to love you and protect you and take care of you can be the source of immense pain and fear and shame. And so that, you know, set the stage for my understanding of what the world was about. It's a scary place and it can hurt you. And you've just got to be on your toes every minute to try to keep from getting into situations where you're going to get hurt. But sort of behind all of that was this sense of, I still, even if I tried, would not have control over anything and I would still end up 
being hurt despite what all of my efforts. So that was how my my worldview developed and what I took with me going through school until I started getting some therapy and, and meeting some other survivors and finding out that there was another way that I could live my life. And what age were you when you began to do that? So I had graduated college. I was in my early um, 20s at that time. Um, so it, it was quite a long time that I just basically, again, once I had those memories come back as a freshman in high school, it was full-blown, keep my brain busy with studying and going to school and, and doing things. And, you know, I wasn't a very social person in some ways because I was just fearful of making those kind of contacts. I had friends along the way when I was in school, but not very close friends because I was afraid that they would find out about what was going on with me. And I was so afraid of being rejected because as little children, you in a way to try to find um, control of your situation is inevitably the, the children blame themselves. It's, it's just been shown time and time again um, with people who work with children that are abused that that's what they do because and then they just blame themselves. And, of course, that can be reinforced by the messages you're getting from the abuser, whether they um, say that to you or, you know, just by the mere fact of what they're doing. They, they tell you and show you that you're worthless. You're unlovable. You deserve these things to happen. And I totally internalized, <laughs> internalized that voice, you know, and. It's something that when you have that basic belief that you're unlovable and so full of shame, you don't want anyone to know the real you. You do a lot of protecting to um, make sure people don't really get to know the real you because you're just so afraid that once they did, they'd leave you, you know, that they would reject you. And and so part of my way of dealing with it was I came a, became a real perfectionist. You know, I talked about school and, and basketball and, you know, band that I was in. I, I just turned it into perfectionism. And so now I had two two voices in my head, the voice of my grandfather telling me how worthless and stupid and unlovable I was, and then this perfectionist voice that I could never get to be perfect. Nobody can. And so it was constantly beating me up for not being perfect. So, you know, I created my own monster in addition to the monster that was living in my life. And that was just, you know, kind of this, this constant battle that I had going on of feeling like the, the lowest worm on the planet, um, no mm. self-esteem, but also trying to, to be the good girl, get the recognition that I could, positive recognition for doing things, you know, as, as perfect as possible. Oh, what a way to live your life. That's got to be so stressful. It's amazing how these messages embed themselves in, in our deep, deeply in our minds. Um, I work with survivors of emotional abuse and, you know, it doesn't matter how old we get 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. If that, if we don't work through the messages that have been implanted in there, then they become ours. And, and like you said, we take them and we go a step further and we just beat ourselves up in some way. So mm-hmm. I can absolutely, absolutely understand that. So you wrote this book for what reason and for whom? So I, I wrote the book because I was inspired to try to help other survivors. Um, I had written some poetry about my experience from what I felt like as a child, the emotions and the sensations I had all the way up through some of the healing I was doing. And 
that was many, many years ago. My husband had told me, why don't you share those so that people can learn from that and maybe help them? And I was like, who's, who's going to want to read a bunch of poetry about abuse? And back then, there was no thing of self-publishing, right? So, uh, And I was like, I don't have the full memory set to be able to write a memoir. As I mentioned before, with the trauma burning, I just couldn't piece those things together. And so I just let it sit to the side. And then a few years back, the story about Dr. Larry Nassar came out in The Gymnast, and it just rocked me. It just broke my heart open, thinking of one man impacting hundreds mm-hmm. of girls and women. And I just thought, you know, they need to heal. They they need to be able to heal from this. And I thought, you know, I don't have a memoir that I can tell just the story of my life, but I have all these different things that I've done and that I've included as practices for myself healing. I can share how I did that. I can help people discover that for themselves and have the book I never had when I was trying to do my healing journey, kind of a blueprint to get people started. And so I decided I could write that book and inspire to help other people. I just dedicated time to do that. Well, that's wonderful. I mean, that's such a gift to so many people. Did you, when you were going through this as a, you know, as an adolescent and young adult, did you tell your parents? No, I didn't really tell anyone for a long time. The first person I actually revealed it to was an older cousin of mine, and it turns out she was also abused by my grandfather. He abused several women in our family, multiple generations of women, oh, um, his own daughters, his granddaughters, and there's a certain type of, of personality that he went after um and so my cousin i she was the first person i revealed and she you know was very supportive and encouraging and um i told a few boyfriends as i started my healing work i was able to share with a few boyfriends um what was going on not in real depth but just to kind of talk to them about it because there was a lot of baggage that came out of that as far as being intimate and physical so i shared occasionally um, but it wasn't, uh, you know, and I, my, so my husband knew from when we were dating, even he knew what had happened. And, and so there was always a full openness about that in my relationship with him. But it wasn't until many years later that I actually told my sister, who was not abused by my grandfather, but told her. And unfortunately, I didn't add the important information of don't tell the parents. I'm not ready to share with them yet. Because she went and told them <laughs> she was mad, oh. upset. I don't know what her motivation was, bless her heart, but she told my parents. And, and I always, growing up, was afraid that if I told my parents, it might lead to them having getting a divorce, that they would blame each other, that things would fall apart. you know. And here's this weird sense mm-hmm. of responsibility for my parents to keep them safe from what had happened <clears> to me. And then, uh, you know, once they found out, we started having conversations, and they were incredibly supportive. You know, I, I was very lucky. Nobody ever rejected me. Now, it, part of that might have been the situation that my grandfather had died when I was 15, and he wasn't there. We did not have to maintain or not maintain a relationship with him. He wasn't part of the family anymore. So in some ways, it was easier, I think, for people in my family to accept it because um, there there was no connection with him. He was gone. Um, but they have always been really supportive. You know, I shared with my sister about writing the book, and I did, you know, share with my parents when I was getting ready to really, I got it edited, I'm really going to do this, you know, and I shared with them, and they were just 
so um, excited that I was going to be able to do that for other people and so proud of me for writing the book and wanting to help other people. So I, and then of course, you know, once the book's ready to go, it's out in the world, you know, I'm, I'm posting on LinkedIn, I'm posting on social media, you know, that first post on social media was pretty terrifying, but I was like, you know, I'm, I'm not ashamed of who I am. I'm not ashamed of what happened to me. It wasn't my fault. And I think that this book is important and I want to share with people. And, you know, one of the scariest ones was sharing it on the Facebook site for my college, I mean, my high school graduating class. Um, and, you know, that was a, a really fearful moment for me. But all along the way, anytime I've shared it, people have been so supportive and encouraging. And, you know, that was just an amazing response to get to make me feel like, you know, I, I've done the right thing to share this. And it it was never meant to be, you know, here's my story. Look at me. It was like, how can I help mm-hmm. you? What do you need? Where can we go to get you along your path to self-healing? Yes. And you've done such a beautiful job with that in this book. So what could one expect on um, their healing journey to be like? Uh, what is it going to involve? <clears throat> so what I would recommend for everyone, if it's at all possible to get um, into therapy with a trained therapist, uh, preferably a, a therapist trained in trauma or specifically in childhood sexual abuse, I think that it's such a critical part of our healing journey. I know everyone's situation is different with insurance, et cetera, but I think if at all possible, that's the first place to start. And that's one of the first parts of my book is talking about my experience and giving people a lot of um, information about how they could find those type of therapists. We're lucky these days with telehealth coming on board that you don't have to have a specialist in your area. You can find someone online that you can connect with. And for me, that's sort of the first step because that was foundational for me to begin my healing work. I needed someone who was not part of my family, not a friend, but um, someone who would be neutral and was trained to help me get through some of those behavioral patterns I had developed as a defense mechanism, get break down some of those voices, those thought processes, and help me see something that was different than what I was used to, the way I was used to seeing things. And out of that individual therapy, I got connected with a couple of groups. One was a women's group of survivors, which was unbelievable. It was the first time I really talked to other survivors and saw people further along the healing journey and could see that it was possible to get to that point and be inspired by them, mentored by them. And the other really amazing group that impacted me a lot was joining the Survivors Incest Anonymous group because mm-hmm. it was multi-age um, and it was men and women. And it was the first time I actually even considered that men could be victims, men could be survivors. And in particular, there was one man there who had been abused by his mother. That was the age that my grandfather was when he was abusing me. And it just really let me Mm. see things in a different way and to hear, Mm. again, their stories and what they went through. So I think that the individual therapy and the group therapy was really – accelerated my my ability to be on my healing journey but I did find that that wasn't enough you know I got to a point where I wasn't really needing to specifically talk to a therapist but I needed some additional things so I think that when it's really scary 
to do that. It's really scary to take that first step to help yourself because you're so filled with shame. You're so fearful of rejection that it's like, you know, this heavy weight to move forward. But for me, you know, it was the first time I told a stranger was when I called my insurance company and asked them, you know, what, what is it that I have benefit-wise for therapy and can I find, how do I find someone that specializes in childhood abuse? You know, to say those words to a stranger, that was like, oh, my God. But once you get started, you know, it's, it's, you have to know it's going to be hard work. It just is. You're unraveling probably years' worth of ways of living and, as we said, foundational ways of understanding the world. And it is hard work, but I kept wanting to be better. I just knew somewhere, somehow, things could be different. And there was some spark in me that kept me going. And I think that for people who are trying to overcome trauma, you you just have to remember how strong you have been to this point to keep going, to get through Mm -hmm. it to this point. And that Mm -hmm. strength is there that you can tap into. And instead of using that strength to survive, you can use that strength to connect to those things that could help you and help your healing. Great, great point. So, um, I coach people who have been abused by uh, narcissists and other personality disordered individuals. And there's two things that come up. One is people are very fearful that all of a sudden everything's going to come up and they're not going to be able to deal with it. And the other Mm -hmm. thing is that I find that people who express that they are incest survivors, they have very serious issues with trust. Mm-hmm. And it's it's <clears throat> we'll have great sessions, and then all of a sudden they'll turn, you know, and just stop trusting. So, can you speak to those two points: the the fear of things coming up and the trust issues around having others help you? Yeah, and I, I think both are, are legitimate things that have to be dealt with, and things things can come up, you know, and it's different for everybody. Some people. You know, the goal of therapy is not to go back into your childhood and relive every moment of your abuse. That's not what therapy is about. So let's get that out of the way that that's not how therapy should work. And if someone's trying to do that to you, leave that therapist because that's not how it's done. But, you know, you don't have to relive every memory of your childhood to heal, but you have to acknowledge the impacts of what happened to you and how you are living your life in response to those. Those are the things that that need to, to be worked on because you're focusing on your patterns of behavior and how you live in the world, how to respond to the world, building your resilience. These are the things that we want to focus on. So yes, while you're doing that work, things can come up and they can be absolutely terrifying and overwhelming. But at the same time, if you think about it, it's like if you have an infected wound, Um, you need to lance that and let the pus out. Sorry to be kind of gross, but you need to do that in order to get some healing done. And if that means that some of these things are going to come up, it means you're releasing them. It means you're processing that energy, processing that memory, and there's a lot of of, um, therapeutic techniques and practices that you can do to to get your mind to deal with those memories and help your mind move to a positive space. So 
if those are going to come up with a therapist to guide you, you can have the support to get through when those arise. You can learn things to do that can kind of reshape or minimize those memories. And then you can just think, okay, this energy is releasing, and now I have that energy that I was using to keep those memories at bay. I can relax that, and I can put the energy into making change and, and moving forward. So, you know, some people may not, you know, remember much. I had some very specific memories that I had to process and work through. A lot of them were body memories that the yoga helped with. But what you see on the other side is so worth going through whatever happens to release that and move forward. I think it, to me it was worth doing because I was so miserable. I had to move out of that space into something else. Um, mm-hmm. And trust is huge. As you said, trust mm-hmm. is a huge thing. And, you know, a healing journey isn't just, I'm going to get on the Audubon, drive 200 miles an hour, and boom, I'm in healing journey land. I know I'm healed. <laughs> it's not that way. It, it comes in fits and starts. It, I don't want to say one step forward, two step back. I, I think of it more as sort of a spiral where you're gaining in information and intelligence about yourself and your situation. You're building your resilience. You're building your skill set and the tools that you have to deal with situations. And even if something comes back around and triggers you or something comes up, you're more skillful or more prepared and better able to handle it. So, you know, it's not going to be a smooth path and necessarily straightforward, but part of the thing we have to do is learn to trust ourselves. You know, you talk about trust and you're kind of, you know, there's two parts, trusting other people and trusting ourselves because survivors don't trust themselves. You know, they they just don't trust their ability to judge other people and um, they, they don't trust that they are able to take care of themselves, that they're good people. So part of the work for me was trusting that I was a good person, learning to trust myself and my instincts, to develop better instincts <laughs> and not just be, you know, oh, everybody's going to, you know, be against me or for me, just learn to be more mature in my understanding of the world. But it did take um, some time to be able to develop trust and full trust in my relationships. And for me, what I learned was I get to decide who I trust, I get to decide who I want to have in my my um, sphere of friends. I get to decide, even if it's in a family, I get to decide how much I share or spend time with people. Um, you know, I, I got to make those decisions. And, and realizing that trust was something I could decide to give or not give and to really let someone be in a relationship with me for a while so that I could see, are they trustworthy? Don't assume they are. Don't assume they're not. Spend some time looking at that and being really aware and thinking about it rather than just going purely on instinct. And then you get a sense of, you know, my, my trust is my gift to someone, and I'm going to make sure that that person deserves that trust and, mm. you know, that it's something that I can have more control over and, and be something that I can be more focused on whether or not I want to trust or not. And it's okay if you decide that that's a no, <laughs> you know, that we're allowed to make those decisions. And the more I was careful with how I opened myself up to people and who I trusted and that, you know, I got positive feedback from that, but you learn occasionally pick the wrong person and then, you know, you learn and just say, okay, what I should have, you know, be more aware that this is a type of person that doesn't deserve my trust. So, 
I think both are big issues that come up as far as reliving things and developing your ability to be more discerning in your trusting. Um, mm-hmm. And those are things that take um, a bit of time to work through but are critical to the process. How do you know that you're with the right therapist? Well, I, I stumbled a little bit when I was first trying to find a therapist when I was in school. And the first one I knew was not right for me because at the time I was dating two guys and she came across as extremely judgmental and took the moral high ground and was beating me up you know, about that that how I was living my life. I'm like, okay, I beat myself up enough already. I don't need to be talking to you. And then the next therapist I found through the, the counseling center at school, to me, I, she listened. She seemed really engaged on me and helping me. Her focus was, let's look at what's going on. Let's look at um, what you're doing. Let's figure out if this is working for you or not. And if it's not, Let's see what else we can do. And she didn't put a lot of pressure on me to do things quickly or do things in a certain sequence. She was just working with me in my situation, my life at that point in time. And I felt like she was invested in me getting better. It was, mm-hmm. I really got a sense from her that she was kind and compassionate and caring and that she just wanted to help me try to become the best person I could. So it was just, you know, spending time with the therapist and paying it. You know, often we're there saying, well, I'm not the expert and this person's going to, you know, help heal me. It's like, well, no, they're going to help you figure out how to heal yourself, but you've got to figure out, do you want to be with this person? They're going to challenge you. They're going to ask you to make changes, but do you feel like they have your back? Do mm-hmm. you feel like they're concerned about your welfare and your improvement? Are they generally nice and compassionate, even if they have to tell you hard things or push you to do things that are hard for you? Are they doing it in a way where they're supporting you and being compassionate? And do you feel safe with them? Whatever that means to you, however you determine that, do you feel safe being with that person? And do you, you have that trust in them that they're going to be able to take you on a journey of self-discovery and self-healing that you'll be able to get there with their help. So, you know, some of it is, is partially intellectual, but a lot of it is just really gut instinct. How do you feel? How does your heart feel? This is a person that's going to be um, given access to your deepest fears and emotions. What does your heart say? You know, it might be hard at first, um, but I say, you know, give, give a therapist a few sessions to see what they're going to say and how they're going to work with you. But like me, it was pretty clear with the first therapist, nope, this is not a good fit. I, d- I don't want to come here and, and be told how bad a person I am. That's, that's not what I'm here for. So it might take a few tries to find a therapist that you really connect with, but that relationship is going to be so important and beneficial that I think when you, you feel comfortable um, to be with that person, then that's where you can kind of decide that it's the right fit. Okay, great advice. Great advice. Um, a lot As of a, times, a person who does support for people, what, what would you want? How would you want someone to decide you're the right therapist for them? I'm, I'm curious on the flip side of that. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Um, people have to feel that they trust me 
because they're going to be doing some very deep-seated work. They have to know that I'm not going to humiliate them, that I'm going to be compassionate, that I know what I'm doing, that, like you said, if I'm asking them to sort of go to some hard places, that they trust me, that I have a reason for doing that. And yeah, I mean, I think validation and support from the get-go is so important. But a, a lot of people express to me that they've been to therapists and, and they choose a therapist based on their, the letters after their name. So oh. just because mm-hmm. a therapist has a PhD or a master's degree does not mean that they are right for you or that they have enough uh, information, enough experience in your particular issue. So I like mm-hmm. the way that you said it. That's perfect. You said that um, you never thought of yourself as depressed because you could get out of bed each day and function in your life in a way that seemed normal. Your normal wasn't normal, right? <laughs> right. It was to me, but not really. <laughs> okay. So if people are feeling that, it's like, well, people say, I'm okay. I'm dealing with it. <laughs> Um, dealing with it is not healing from it. So can you speak to that? Like how would people, what would you say to people who say, listen, I've lived decades with this, you know, this history and um, I don't need to do anything about it now. What would you say to people? Mm -hmm. Well, I'd ask them, do you like the life that you have? Do you love the life you have? Do you have a lot of joy? Um, what are your relationships like? Relationships like are they fulfilling? Are you able to be close to people? Are you able to trust people? Um, do you have times where you don't like yourself immensely? Do you have times where you just don't want to be with yourself? Are you living the life that you truly want? If you could look at a friend who is living your life, would what would you say to them? Would you encourage them to do more, be more? Um, could, what would the friend say to you that would let you know whether or not you're really living a life that you could live if you weren't afraid, if you could, could trust more, if you could move past what had happened so that you could be open and loving to your fullest extent? I would just ask some questions, you know, there's no judgment really. It's, it's, and it may be that that person is, nope, I don't, I don't care. I'm not going back. I'm not dealing with it. This is just my life. And that's a choice. That's certainly a choice. But I'd hope that I could ask some questions that they might say, you know what, it is not what I want it to be in this area. You know? And it doesn't have to be your whole life sucks and is miserable. And you know, it could be I really wish that I could have more friends or that I could really fully enjoy something when I have a good experience. It could be just those pieces of your life that you want to have more of and feel more of. And that could be something that's worth going and and finding someone to work with on that. It doesn't have to necessarily be, you know, rehashing and rebuilding. It could be, I really just want to explore this aspect of my life and see if I can take it to the next level. Um, So a lot of questions, I guess, that I would offer to someone to um, contemplate, to think about and see if, the true deep down answer is, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I'm worth what I have. Or if there's a yearning there, a desire to 
be more, have more, be able to experience more. Okay, good. Very good advice. So what are some of the other things that you have done that have helped you in your journey to thrive? One of the big things that I did right after I kind of moved through the therapy, individual and group therapy, was I got connected to yoga. Now, it wasn't really kind of planned. I didn't have this roadmap. Well, if I'm going to move to this new thing and this new thing, I'm going to explore all these things. I I had no idea what I was doing. Like I said, I didn't have my book to help me through it. But ironically, my husband and I were thinking about having a family, and I read that, you know, yoga was great when you were pregnant. I said, okay, being the type A person I was, I'm like, if it's great when you're pregnant, I should try to do it before I get pregnant. <laughs> so that's how I started off exploring. And little did I know how impactful it would be uh, because I had not done any body work. You know, it was all really about, you know, dealing with the emotions and, and sort of more of an intellectual kind of exercise when I was um, going through therapy. But when I started doing yoga, whoo everything started coming up body-wise, and I call them body memories. It was the sensations and the this feeling of being touched in places, and it was, you know, it didn't have to be triggered by anything. It would just kind of come up, especially in certain poses, and it was really kind of another layer of being scary because, as you mentioned earlier, I absolutely hated my body. I treated it as a machine, and I would abuse it and push it as far as I could, and, you know, I had no positive relationship whatsoever with my body. I just, I still disliked it immensely. But when I got into yoga, I started realizing, oh my gosh, there's so much in my body that needs to be processed. And I went ahead and finally told my yoga teacher, it was a man teaching the beginning level um, classes. And as we know from the statistics, this is probably not surprising. His sister had been abused, so he got it. And so he really worked with me to say, okay, I'm not going to come over and, you know, put, put my hands on you to adjust you, which is the normal part of, of this particular yoga practice. I'm not going to do that. We agreed to that. And I, he gave me alternatives to certain poses that were just too, felt too exposed in so that I wouldn't feel like I was standing out in class. And he was very supportive. And slowly I, I was able to go through the yoga classes and really process a lot of things with my body to get to the point that I was able to um, really start to enjoy being in my body. I um, enjoy feeling the strength and flexibility that I got out of yoga and was really appreciating my body more than I ever had before. So that was critical. Um, And then I went in and started meditation, which kind of was a natural thing coming out of yoga and, and being in that space to really start working with my mind some more. Um, you know, nowadays they have trauma-informed yoga, which is amazing. They've got trauma-informed therapy, and you've got trauma specialists that are therapists, and trauma-informed meditation for people who want to practice meditation but have a, a trauma background. Um, but that's when I learned to really work with those voices, my grandfather's voice, my perfectionist voice. I learned to work with those um, and quiet them down be silent and be able to hear my own voice again, my true voice again. So those things were really very critical for me to, to have those experiences. But then I'd always been a real physical kid, just really keeping up with uh, doing physical things like riding bikes and rollerblading and walking. Um, getting out and being in nature was huge for me. It, you know, we know now from a lot of studies that nature is incredibly healing for all kinds of mental health situations. So 
for me, that was really important to be out in nature as often as I could to just be in a space where I felt safe and really connected to what was happening around me and enjoying the, you know, the beauty of what was there and being able to kind of internalize some of that beauty. And then it was a creative expression. I mean, I, I had been a a little writer and poet when I was young in school and then, you know, tapping back into that. Cause that was one thing that was the most painful and maybe the most angry is my childhood was stolen from me. It was stolen from me at a very early age. And that playfulness, that creativity, it had a few outlets when I was in school, but it, you know, I, that had been stolen from me. So getting back to the point where I could um, be creative, whether it was writing or doing art or particularly photography, because I, with photography, I could go out in nature. So it was a win-win <laughs> to do those things. But that just really connected me back to that playfulness, that childlike curiosity to explore and say, well, let me try this and see what I can do and, and not having to be good at it, you know, just saying I want to explore it and have fun because it's fun to create stuff. It's fun to take pictures. It's fun to do these things. Um, so that was just another aspect of healing, you know, and a really deep healing for that inner child that really um, didn't have a way to express that and, and didn't feel safe enough to be open like that. And then learning to be kind and pamper myself. I mean, as I said, I hated my body. I mistreated my body. I didn't feel I deserved to have good things like flowers and chocolates and bubble baths and, you know, whatever it is that people enjoy doing. I denied myself that because I was punishing myself for a long time. But when I let go of that need to punish myself and to appreciate my body and, you know, just do something simple and fun, like I said, a bubble bath or, or buy a bunch of flowers for myself, that that was a way of really being positive and giving myself the message again and again, you are worth this. You're a good person. You should um, take the joy that you can get from other people and give things to yourself because you deserve them and you should just be able to enjoy them no matter how simple they are or more fancy, how fancy they are. Just do stuff mm. to be kind to yourself to show yourself some self-compassion because that is so healing. Self-compassion and self-kindness are so healing. And you can tap into that by taking an art class, by, you know, buying a box of chocolate, by, you know, doing some physical exercise that makes you feel good. Whatever it is, you can find ways to do all these different things that work for you as a, a survivor that really lift you up and bring you joy and you just, we know now from all the studies, scientific studies of neurobiology that you can rewire your brain. That's how we can get all this healing through therapy and everything we do. We can rewire our brains and we can train our brains to focus on the positive, really immerse ourselves in our positive experiences. And the brain learns to go after those, to recognize those. And we bring more and more and more of that in our life. And it's like a, a self-fulfilling kind of process where we can have that in our lives more because we spend more time in that space. So there's a lot of opportunity for folks. You know, my book just lays out the different things that I have tried as examples. And for everything that I mention, I try to tell people, okay, here's some things that you can do to find the different ways that you could get physical and how you connect with the yoga studio, how you find meditation. I try to guide people on how to discover and connect with the things that work for them. Very, very good. Yes, you do. You do that very well in this book. What would you say 
to a child or young adult that may be listening that's currently experiencing uh, incest or you know sexual abuse from um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a family member it could be a family friend or something like that what would you say to 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 someone going through it currently I would say try to find someone you trust that you can tell because you don't deserve this to be happening to you it's not your fault it's the person who's doing this. There's just, just something wrong with them that they are doing this to you. See if you can find someone to tell that could help you, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a, a good friend of the family, maybe it's someone in the family you trust. But we need to figure out how we can get you help and how we can make it stop. Um, the adults in your life need to help you. <laughs> you need to find someone that you know that you can trust. Um, and what happens after that is that they're going to help you and we can make it stop. And so that you can go back to being a kid, a young adult and have your life back. Yes. And that's got to be very scary, especially since the messages are, you know, if you tell I will hurt somebody or I think some of the other things that go through, you know, their head is, well, I'm somewhat enjoying this. Does that mean I'm responsible for this? You know, does this, does this mean I'm not being uh, victimized? And uh, yeah, our bodies are made to feel pleasure. They bodies feel pleasure, bodies feel pain. And it's just a natural part of what we do. What's not right is the person who's forcing you to do that because they want to do that. You know, you should have a choice and an adult should never ask you to do that because that's not something that someone takes from you. It's something that you have that's your own personal body that you should be able to say um, that this is my space, this is my body, and it's not okay to touch me, even if in some ways that touch is good, it's not okay for someone to do that to me. And you know, just know that your body is made to feel, but it's your it's your body, and you decide. Okay, great. That's that's really amazing advice. What do we? What do you do when you're triggered? Do you still get triggered at times? Oh yeah, it happens. You know, it's not. That's the difference when you're on your healing journey for a while. That there are occasionally things that will remind me. I guess I wouldn't. I don't know if I call it triggering technically because it doesn't throw me into that same mind space, that same body set, same emotional space that could be completely overwhelming and make you unable to function. So I've moved beyond what I would call triggering to something reminds me. There's a smell, there's a sound, like a certain bird that was in the forest where, you know, my grandparents lived. I see somebody out of the corner of my eye that, you know, quickly, um, reminds me of my grandfather, you know, there's these things that come up that remind me of things, but um, a certain touch sometimes. And, but it's not overwhelming. It's because I've, I've worked really hard to be in my body to accept myself as completely as I can. And there's moments when we all feel like, ah, you know, about ourselves, but I've moved to the point where they're reminders and I recognize, oh, that, that's what just happened. And then I'm able to move on. Before, it could have been don't get out of bed for a day or, you know, be, break down and, you know, completely lose it. Um, it. So it shifts. 
And that's the benefit of the work. That's the reward of the work is that if things do come up that are reminders, they don't take over your life. You can recognize them and respond to them rather than reacting and having it drive you into a place you don't want to be. Yeah, a couple of things that you say, you say these are only memories and you're safe. Um, you survived and are, are no longer in that original abusive situation. Concentrate on your surroundings to ground yourself in the present. I like these. These are very good for really um, anyone that's being triggered because initially it could be, it could be terrifying to go through a panic attack. The body is scaring us. We can't breathe. Um, our heart feels like it's pounding out of our chest and these can be very, very scary. So if you have ways that you can talk to yourself to calm this down, do you have any other ways that you use any other methods that you used during, you know, when you were going through the worst of it? Yeah. And I still suffer from some level of anxiety, particularly, you know, with COVID and the world's really not a safe place now, right? Hello. It's, it's real this time. Um, right. Yeah, I, I, I have anxiety um, that I deal with. What has really helped me the most recently is doing the working with the five senses. So you're in a place you're just anxious, and a lot of that is projecting to the future of something coming that's going to be something you can't handle and be overwhelmed by it. So getting present and embodied. So the five senses is like, okay, what five things do I see around me? What am I smelling? What am I hearing? You know, really, truly, what is real right now for the fight? What do I feel on my skin? Do I feel my clothes? I mean, it's very simple, but it for me, just going to like, what am I hearing? What am I seeing? You know, if I can note five things, that just brings me right back to my place. And that gets me um, focused enough and present enough that then I can trigger into trigger. I can move into some of those other um, practices like breathing and counting your breaths and other things that you could do. And, and in my book, I recommend people think about it. Say, can you identify what is triggering for you? If at all possible, can you avoid that? And if you can't, can you have something um, mapped out that you're going to do? Do you? And to me, it's even write it down on a piece of paper or a little sticky note or something, laminate it, whatever you need to do, carry it with you so that you don't have to remember. You're in an anxiety attack. You're having some kind of trigger moment. If you can pull out this little list and say, okay, walk myself through this. I have this here. I've prepped for this. You know, mm-hmm. I, you know, maybe a number that you call your best friend, whatever it is, you have something that you have prepped for ahead of time so that you can say, I'm ready, and here's what I just need to do. Because, you know, when we get in those situations, our brains are not, you know, the analytical organized, I've got my checklist that I, I've memorized, you know, sometimes that just goes out of your brain and you don't know the things you can do. You don't remember the things you can do to help yourself. So that's why I literally encourage people make a list, um, whatever it is that you need to do and carry it with you so that you can pull that out and hold on to it and read through it and do whatever that list is that you know is going to work for you and get through that. I think that is such a valuable tool. I really, really like that. Because one of the things that happens when we feel that we're, <clears throat> that we're in danger <clears throat> is we have an amygdala hijack, which mm-hmm. means that the stress in our body causes our amygdala, which is, um, emotionally regulates us in these situations, to act before or to feel before we think, can think about it. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, people end up doing things or feeling certain ways that even if they've worked on it in the past, they may be, you know, they may be sent into these kind of um, tailspins. So mm-hmm. I like that, that you be prepared and you have it in your pocket, you carry it with you so you can pull it out. It's sort of like, um, you know, if you know you're going to have, a, if, you, if you are prone to heart attack, you carry your medicine with you. If you know that you have asthma, you carry your inhaler with you. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's really kind of a survival thing. So that's very good. So tell us, um, I know that your book is, and we're talking about your book, Thriving After Sexual Abuse, Break Your Bondage to the Past and Live a Life You Love. Denise, I know that you were honored with um, a gold award by the Nonfiction Book Awards through the Nonfiction, Nonfiction Authors Association, and you've been a finalist in other nonfiction um, Best Book Awards and Independent Author Network and Kindle Book Awards. This is, this is just amazing. And you've been selected by Kirkus Reviews uh, for the August issue, which is amazing. Because I know, and you say that, you know, when you sent me that email, I know that Kirkus doesn't really look at you if you're an indie author, if you're, you know, self-published. So congratulations on that. You're doing so well with this book. What else do you want us to know about this book? I want people to to know that it is really for survivors and a way to help them discover their own self-healing journey, but it's also for the partners and families of survivors. I think it's really informative for the people who are trying to support survivors to read through the book, to understand what it's like. So that way survivors can not necessarily have to explain everything to the people that are in their family or the partners that, you know, can share the book. And those folks can get an understanding of what the survivor might be going through and the support they might need. And it's definitely for mental health professionals because I think it's something that can inform them about a survivor's experience and um, different modalities of healing and that they can share that out with their clients. So it's not just for the folks who are trying to work through the trauma of their childhood experience. It's for the people around them and the professionals supporting them so that they can have insight and that they can learn from the book and, and be of more help to the survivors as well. Mm, awesome. Amazing. Amazing. It's, it's, a, it's really a great book. And your book is available everywhere books are sold, I would imagine, Amazon and um, Barnes and Noble, Barnes, Apple, yeah. Google Play. Yep, it's it's wherever you like to get your books. It's available there, and it's it's available as a paperback, and it's also available um, as a digital book through those different platforms. Okay, all right, that's really good. That's really good. Well, I want to thank you so much for sharing this with us because I know there are people out there whose ears have perked up and they're like, hmm, maybe I can do this. Do you talk to people if they, if they feel like they need someone to talk to? Do you, do you offer that um, of yourself? I, I generally haven't connected directly with people um, on it because I don't really feel like I'm qualified at a therapist level to help people. I certainly um, am willing to you know, hear people share their stories, but I really think that connecting with um, a therapist is is 
really the best way to go for healing. Um, sharing your story with other people in groups and, and that sort of thing is important as well. But I, I kind of steer away from that because I don't want people to try to use me as their personal therapist or expect me to be the person that can answer their questions because everyone's experience is unique. And I think that people really need to reach out to professionals to get that kind of support. That's really good advice. Really, really good advice. Okay. So is there a message that you want to leave us with or have we pretty much covered all of it? I think we pretty much covered it. Again, I just want to reiterate for the survivors who are listening that it wasn't your fault, never your fault. And whatever you were told, whatever they try to make you believe, they were lying to you. You are a good person. Something bad happened to you, but that doesn't have to define you. That doesn't have to define who you are and how you live your life. You get to do that. And you're strong. And you can find a way, step by step, little bit by little bit, to do what you need to do to move beyond being a victim, move beyond just surviving your life to actually living the life you want. Okay, awesome, awesome message. Okay, well, thank you so much. Um, I really enjoyed your book, and, um, and I hope everybody will pick up a copy of Thriving After Sexual Abuse. Um, by Denise, is that what it is? Yep, <laughs> Bossert. <laughs> Bossert, okay, okay, perfect. Perfect, by Denise Bossert, B-O-S-S-A-R-T-E. All right, Denise, thank you, thank you, thank you again, and have a wonderful day. I've, I really appreciate right, you being you my so guest much. today. Okay, take All right, care. thank you. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye. So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlife at randyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.